Welcome to Senior Moments on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Well, Sharon, we are on, and we do have James on the line, but we haven't got Mike here yet. Oh, haven't we? Oh, well, let's talk to James and and microphone in. Mm-hmm. Are you there, James? I sure am. Oh, good good to hear you. Uh, we got a nice day today. Why are we inside? Are you inside? <laughs> Uh, I've got my foot uh, inside and outside. I got the, I'm sitting right beside the door that, uh, <laughs> that goes outside, so yeah. I guess a little bit, bit of both here. Yeah. Well, we haven't had su- such good weather, and and uh, to to have this day without rain, I hope we're not going to have the same as last year. Yeah, you and me both. Um, and you know, the other great thing about this time of year is the mosquitoes aren't quite out yet. No, they're not. I can sit outside. <laughs> yeah, we've got to enjoy this while we got it. Yeah, but what I um, discovered was putting a fan on the deck and pointing it towards me, it keeps those mosquitoes away, and I don't have to put that mosquito dope on me, that glyphosate on me. Yeah, the deep. <laughs> Glow in the dark. Yeah. Yeah, and then remember those those green coils? I mean, I don't think those ever really worked, but uh, <laughs> we used to burn those when we were kids all the time. Yeah, I, I think I still have some kicking around now that you mention it. Oh, well, my better, God. Better, better hang on to those. Those are collectors items. Now. <laughs> I'll go on. Yeah, I'll go on that antique row show. <laughs> Yeah. I can be one of the antiques. Oh, my goodness. The one thing about watching that show is, you know, 350 thousand dollars somebody had a picture the other day that was worth that kind of money that they paid a hundred dollars for at a, a a swap shop or something oh yeah yeah never know so um with this weather i was reading this this morning about um canfor and about their five-year plan on the spray but they refused to divulge um, where they were going to spray around Prince George on um, Crown land. Yeah, that's, uh, that's correct. Actually, we, uh, we were given the maps from somebody in government. Uh-huh. So they, they legally, they have to uh, put the maps in to the administrator, mm-hmm. the pesticide administrator, 30 days before they spray or something like that. Yeah. And... Um, you know, this is, let's not forget, this is public land, and then they're spraying with public money. That's the other thing that we're not, um, that they don't always talk about, is that that spraying is paid for through deductions on stumpage. Yes. So they they, they get, uh, they have to pay less stumpage in exchange for paying for spraying. So that's money that we don't get from these companies that they get to keep and spend on spraying. So, you know, that really should be public information. It should be. You don't have to argue with them to get those maps. Well, that should be posted on on a website voluntarily, and yeah, and you know they, they actually do that in Alberta. So the companies that spray in Alberta, they their regulations require them to put in newspaper notices of the actual block that they're going to spray. Yes, and so my thought was that crown land belongs to the citizens of British Columbia; doesn't belong to Camphor. And how can they spray land that belongs to us without telling us about it? And uh, and that's kind of what you're saying. And but that was my thought when I saw what I put in the computer was: um, Is Canfor allowed to spray Crown land? Uh, 
And that's how I got to that site where it said Canfor is not divulging where they're spraying. So I'm really, I don't think we should sit for that. No, absolutely not. I mean, we had a we had a protest there last um, fall, kind of opposing this whole plan because they have the only regulations. Uh, I mean, there's there's some details around spraying. Uh, they're not allowed to spray uh, fish bearing waterways and stuff. But you know, one of the only things they have to do uh, to get these plans approved is is do what's called a, a pest management plan, and they only have to do that once every five years. Yeah. Once once that pest management plan is approved, they have authorization to spray any of their cup walks uh, for the next five years. Yeah. All, all they have to do, they're required to submit a map to the government telling them where they're going to spray. Yeah. Uh, there's some other stuff around, you know, people opposing. Well, actually, no, the only time that people can oppose this plan is once in that five-year period when they develop that test management plan. So that's, well, that's why we had that protest was to say, hey, we're not... Uh, we're not happy with this plan, and we don't approve of this plan. And you know what? They never even got back to us. We wrote letters to the government. They never even responded to us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the guy that approved the plan down in on Vancouver Island mm-hmm. ultimately signed off on it. I'm losing you. I'm losing you. Are you stepping outside? No, I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there's something going on because I can't hear. Mike, are you there? I'm here, you bet. Yeah, and James, are you there? Yeah, can you hear me? But you're, I'm having trouble hearing you, James. Okay. Um. Okay, so, um, but be, so Mike's on, uh, James, Mike is on, but before we go any further, I want to thank Mike for his, his comments in the house yesterday about RCMP and police. And so, Mike, can you just add a little bit here about what this week is about and what we're acknowledging about the, the people who put themselves at risk to protect us? Yeah, no, there's a lot of feedback on the line here uh, right now, Sharon, so hopefully I'm coming through okay. Yeah. But it's, it's National Police Week uh, 2021, and uh, the, the police across Canada have determined that, you know, the theme for this week is going to be collaboration and cooperation between policing agencies, uh, the public. Uh, There's so much noise. I wonder if I should try phoning in on a different line here. Yeah, maybe try that, Mike. Yeah. Okay, James. Um, are you there, James? Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, can you hear that feedback? I can, yeah. Oh, it's it's gone now. I got rid of it. Okay. There's something that I'm not doing. Okay. Right so Mike's going to phone back in on another line and and see if we can get... Oh, this is really bad. Can you hear me, sir? There. Okay. Are you there, Mike? I'm here. Is that better? Yep. Much better. Okay. Good. So we were talking about the police. I don't know yeah. if they're going to hear each other. Yeah, no, National Policing Week, and uh, the theme for this year is uh, collaboration between not only police agencies, but the social agencies and the public. And, of course, this is uh, music to my ears because it's exactly what I was looking at with my new integrated policing model that I'd like to uh, see developed one of these days as well. So. But it's also, you know, in recognizing the police officers across British Columbia, 
for the job they do under duress or under under un- extreme pressure, I guess is the best way to put it. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they deal with society's worst behaved people, mm-hmm. bar none. There's nobody worse in society uh, than the, the people that police deal with. And uh, they deal with liars, cheaters, and thieves, like I said in my statement in the house there. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where uh, the majority of their work is concentrated on. The peripheral work that also ties up a huge amount of time are the poor, unfortunate folks that suffer from mental illness or addictions or both, uh, people that have, uh, you know, lost their house because maybe they're unemployed uh, or maybe they had an accident and they haven't been able to work. There's a number of reasons why. Mm-hmm. But police always be, seem to be on the front end uh, in dealing with those issues as well, trying to help, you know, those folks navigate through the hurdles that they're, they're faced with, uh, trying to help those folks who end up finding themselves committing uh, what I call crimes of survival. Yes. You know, they, they don't have any intent on being mean or disruptive, but they're, you know, they're they're, they're committing theft or some other crimes in order just to survive. Mm-hmm. So they deal with those, and they do it with extreme integrity. You know, I was watching a couple of police officers deal with a with a uh, number of folks that were uh, laying in a in a foyer downtown, and uh, the patience that mm-hmm. they exhibited in dealing with those folks was remarkable mm-hmm. uh, they were you know they were it's hurdles uh, insults being hurdled at them mm-hmm. uh, accusations of racism being hurdled at them mm-hmm. but they persevered and they maintained their professionalism and they carried on and that's happening right across this province right across this country we've got the the best trained police in the world here in British Columbia. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think the public gives police enough credit for the garbage that they have to put up with from the individuals. And, uh, you know, that they're trying to help. They're trying to do the best they can to help under very extreme circumstances. So uh, that's why I put that statement together in the House. Really? Yeah, really. Uh, I mean, we, uh, I, most all of us appreciate that we're safe because others put themselves at risk. And uh, I just wanted to uh, take a moment just to acknowledge that because I certainly am appreciative. And I know that whenever I've called them, uh, I've got the answer that I wanted or they've found the answer I've wanted. Um, anyway, so we were going to talk about glyphosate today. And James and I were talking about um, a little thing I discovered this morning was about camphor spraying on crown land. And uh, my mind says crown land belongs to me, not to camphor. And it belongs to all of us citizens and how they don't have a right to spray without telling us where it is. And, and it said on this on the computer, it said that they're not divulging where in the area of Prince George they're going to spray. So that's where James and I were at. But what I want is for you and James. James, can you hear um, us? Yeah, I, I can hear you. Um, hello, Mike. Uh, hope you're doing well. I'm doing well, and uh, you've got a good candidate with James uh, speaking about this topic here, Sharon. Yes, and I, and so I wanted the two of you to talk about the importance of, of the forest and not just for money. And, uh, uh, you know, you traveled, um, Mike, you traveled all over the province one year and did a, 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 um, a report on what was going on. And in that report, you said that forestry didn't talk talk. A, one thing about the animals or the insects or the uh, the food that the animals live on. So I'm just going to let you two talk about 
the importance of not using glyphosate in the forest? Yeah, so, so I guess I'll just start here, and I just want to put some allocates out there for, for James there, the terrific job that you've been doing with Stop the Spray. Um, very informative website, uh, you know, mm-hmm. passing on some great information to uh, to the public and to everybody that's concerned out there. You know, and James and I, or, you know, we've talked about this in the past. My concern, I, I'm, I'm not a scientist, so I kind of stay away from the scientific side and the, the carcinogenic issues and stuff surrounding glyphosate. My concern is over loss of habitat. You know, we've seen drastic declines in our bird populations, our insect populations, our mice populations, and everything else associated to over-harvesting, number one, but also associated to the glyphosate spring, and and I've seen it firsthand uh, in many locations here. So that's where my concern is, and of course, you know, you, James, uh, you've done a lot of work on this as well, and you can talk... Uh, very well on the long-term effects of glyphosate and the fact that, uh, you know, some of these root masses are thousands and thousands of years old and in, in many cases will never be able to regrow those uh, those trees again. Yeah, no, that, that's, a, that's a shocking part of this whole whole story for sure, is we just assume that all the stuff kind of comes back and, and that's, not, that's not really the case. And you can see that, you know, just in abandoned fields, I think, is is a good example. You won't see the aspen regrowing. You'll see cottonwoods can can grow from seed, and the birch um, and some willows will eventually come in. But you rarely see aspen. And it's not to say they'll never come from seed, but they kind of need really good conditions. They need exposed soil. They need good moisture, and they're starting from a teeny little plant, right? So if it gets dry, and the top couple inches of the soil dries out, they're they're done. And that's kind of why that root system is so important. Is that is that that's um that's going to allow that tree uh, to survive and through droughts because those roots are tapped into water tables the way underground and like, it's an incredible system really with that we that we've been given here in the in our forests and and we're not really paying attention i think or respecting that system we're just kind of thinking that that we can uh we're looking at these trees as competition and they're not competition you know they're they're part of the they're part of the whole system and I think there's a real groundswell uh, coming, that's uh, happening, um, that is looking at our forest totally different. And I think we're moving away from the idea that uh, there's competition in the forest between trees and that actually the whole thing is a cooperative kind of system. Um, just to back up, Sharon, to the CANFOR, uh, we were talking mm-hmm. earlier about the, uh, the CANFOR plan, mm-hmm. you know, and saying, like, how can, how can CANFOR do that? It's required by law. That's the government that makes them do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the government allows them to spray glyphosate, and and like I say, uh, gives them money to do it, mm-hmm. our tax money to do it. Mm-hmm. So this is we really need to start getting through to these government guys and getting change uh, on the policy level. Because well, ultimately, these corporations don't want to be spraying. And there's, uh, I don't know if um, if you saw the Facebook post I did there on Stop the Spray BC last night about the. Uh, the uh, West Fraser Chief Forester for BC Operations, uh, Jeff Mycock. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, uh, I missed it. That was a presentation from back in December, but he basically is saying that uh, our forests aren't, we're not preparing our forests for resiliency, mm-hmm. that we basically failed in how we've managed our forests. Mm-hmm. And we're growing just single crop conifer species across huge parts of our landscape. And it's not going to respond to that it's extremely flammable, he said. And, mm-hmm. and uh, 
and basically the final point he made in that presentation was we need to grow more deciduous. So here you have, you know, uh, the top forester for a corporate, the biggest softwood corporation in the world, West Razor, mm-hmm. saying stuff that you don't hear the government ever say. And, you know, and yeah. why is that? And the other part of of um, of the Aspen um, that I read this morning was about uh, it's a fire retardant. Oh yeah. And and the importance of having the the green broadleaf uh, plants and trees is to, it stops the fire. Like we've had these terrible fires. The reason why is because they're killing off the the uh, protection. Well, I don't I don't know if we can blame that entirely in, in the uh, killing off the protection, but I I would certainly agree, argue that. Um, we increased the losses by getting rid of the deciduous. Mm-hmm. So the government actually did a, because I, I made that same accusation. I told them that they were, <laughs> you know, getting rid of these fire. And let's just back up a little bit. Like, the science totally supports the the uh, the idea that these aspen are fire resistant. Like, over a period of 36 years, there was a study in northern Alberta where they measured the percentage of the forests uh, burnt. And the pine, the pure pine stands burnt 840% more land area than the pure aspen forest over multiple fire years. Mm. Uh, so, you know, statistically and scientifically, if you have more pine in the landscape, you're going to have way more fire. Yeah. And if you have more aspen, you're going to have way less fire. So the, the government they actually dug into the numbers, and they didn't share the details with me. I'm still working on that. Mm-hmm. And they found that 10%, and they wouldn't clarify if that was 10% of the plantations or 10% of the total area burnt in the 2017-2018 fires had been brushed to remove the deciduous. Yeah. So they they told me that that was a small amount, and that I'm you know I'm making a tempest out of a teapot. I'm like, whoa, 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 hold on, guys. We lost over a million hectares in those fires. Ten percent is a hundred thousand hectares. Mm-hmm. That's not peanuts. That's that's ten. That's a hundred thousand hectares that would still be green if we hadn't gotten rid of the deciduous there. And furthermore, even though it's only ten percent, the forest firefighters probably could have leveraged those patches and those strips of deciduous had we left them alone mm-hmm. and protected exponentially more conifers. Mm-hmm. And this gets back to my argument that all this stuff is in cooperation because we look at Aspen as a competitor. If it is saving your forest from forest fire, if it is creating these these fire resistant refuges for animals to go to and forest yeah. fires to tie into, yeah. then how do you call that a free everything? Yeah. Um, we're gonna have to take a short break and uh, we'll come right back with Mike and James to talk some more about glyphosate. This is Senior Moments. We'll be right back. Featuring the latest songs from artists in Canada and from around the world. Hosted by DJs from coast to coast to coast. 30 minutes of Canada's newest music downloaded exclusively from the Earshot's digital distribution system. For more information about the show, check out earshot-distro.ca. Listen up, Canada. This is your show on your station. Canada's Earshot Daily. Earshot Daily, weekday nights at 1125 here on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Excavation is underway in preparation for the construction of two new apartment buildings behind Mr. PG. Access to the Prince George Landmark is still available during construction via the access road from Rec Place Drive or from the sidewalk running along the south side of Highway 97. More information about Mr. PG can be found on the city website at princegeorge.ca slash mrpg. 
Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada is accepting applications for temporary workers in healthcare, temporary workers and other selected essential occupations, and international students who graduated from a Canadian institution. Applications will be accepted through November 5th or until the current limit has been reached. Intake streams for French-speaking or bilingual candidates have also been launched. Full details are available through the Immigration and Citizenship link at Canada.ca. Forecast from Environment Canada. Today, sunny, high of 16 with a high UV index. Tonight, increasing cloudiness, a low of 5. Wednesday, mainly cloudy with a 60% chance of showers in the morning, then a mix of sun and cloud, a high of 16. Brought to you in part by Riverbend Seniors Community on 93.1 CFISFM. This is Senior Moments. And we're back on the air. So welcome back, James and, and Mike. Um, so we were talking uh, about glyphosate spray and, and about uh, how the aspen and the green protects the forest from fires to a degree anyway. Um, and, and while we were off, I was thinking about, you know, Mike, you being in the government, um, when I think that Canada Health has has not found any uh, um, reason to stop using glyphosate, that kind of makes me, what have we got for health? Like, what kind of science is, is telling us this? Well, you know, um, I, I was a member of the uh, Drug Benefit Council for BC, and we approved all the new drugs approved by Health Canada uh, for inclusion on our pharmacare program and whatnot. And I found the system that Canada had, and the Canada or the system we had in British Columbia was very robust. Like there was no stone left unturned. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to, you know, when, when it comes to the issues around science itself, everything has to be evidence based. And I don't think any scientist will stand up and say inconclusively that that um, a situation is is black and white unless the evidence is there to bear it out. And I think there's, uh, you know, Monsanto and all these different companies have put up, they spent millions of dollars on their own scientific studies that have gone up against uh, Health Canada. And, uh, you know, I, I guess I'm only surmising that perhaps it's it's still inconclusive for Health Canada to put their stamp on it at the end of the day. I don't know. I, I'm just surmising this. So, um, you know, like I said at the beginning, I'm not a scientist. Uh, you know, I, science was my worst subject in high school. Um, but uh, I do, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a conservationist. Yes. And I do know what kills the grass and the seeds and the berries and, and the, the leaves and that ends up starving the smaller animals, which starve the medium-sized animals, and all the way up to your large ungulates mm-hmm. that uh, don't have any food left. So that's where my concern is. And let's get rid of the spring so that we can preserve our wildlife. We, we need to start looking at the stand level. So at, the, at uh, you know, when you're walking in the bush and you look around, that everything that you see needs to have a value on it. Mm-hmm. So the animals that are walking in the bush, you know, there's an intrinsic value, there's an extrinsic value to them. There's a protein value to the ungulates and to the bears and and animals like that, but there's also that intrinsic 
viewing value that you get mm-hmm. when you see these animals on the land. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we need to start taking that in consideration when we when we put a, a price on a two by four, mm-hmm. and and we move forward saying, okay, you know, we can log in this area, but from an ecological perspective, we we're not going to be doing clear cut logging. We're going to select logs like we used to do yeah. prior to the mid 1960s, mm-hmm. and only take the you know some larger trees that's not going to impact on wildlife habitat. We'll make sure there's no denning sites that are going to be destroyed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I find it uh, interesting. I was just talking to a, a friend of mine the other day who who r- runs a wildlife monitoring company that's been hired by a pipeline company in BC. Mm-hmm. And he has his people going out and they collect every salamander, every snake, every frog. Mm-hmm. Um, they identify every bird's nest that might be in the way. And if they do find a bird's nest, they can't cut anything down between now and August. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yes, right. and they have to leave these 500-meter strips around a, a, a nesting site. Mm-hmm. We don't see that in forestry. How many, how many uh, um, clear cuts do we go into today? And we look and we say, geez, there must not have been any bird nests in here because there's not a tree standing for hundreds, <laughs> of, hundreds of hectares, yeah. which is unusual. Yes. And uh, so forestry don't check. And, and they're required to under the Migratory Bird Convention Act. So there's a number of issues that that really need to be addressed moving forward with a new forestry model. Well, maybe we can take people to court and and sue them, because in the States, the uh, bear has been um, sued for, like, up, up to a billion dollars for illnesses that people are, are um, tracing back to the use of, of uh, glyphosate. And I'm thinking... You know, I, I thought of that at the beginning when I first started looking at this and then reading more. And I'm not a scientist either. I'm an environmentalist um, to uh, all, all that I can do. But uh, I think that we need to hold the government to account uh, when they're breaking the, the rules. Hey, we, we do. You know, the, the thing to bear in mind, uh, the rule of law prevails in, in our country. Thank God it does. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes it's frustrating as all get out to, to, to see some of these decisions that, that uh, come out. But the letter of the law must prevail. Yeah. And like I said, if there's that reasonable doubt, if, if uh, you know, if somebody cannot conclusively say that A equals B, then they can't say that. Yeah. And until such time as we get there, then we're going to see these, these court cases. And those help transition us from this, this area of doubt. So finally, what some court is going to say beyond a reasonable doubt, yeah, you know, you, you do make a point here, uh, you know, uh, your chemical company or whatever it might be. And this will be the ruling that will stand from this point forward. But um, we're getting there, but uh, it's going to cost a lot of money and it's going to cause a lot of anguish. And uh, um, it's going to cause a lot of pain until we do get to that point. And I read this morning that Quebec has banned the use. It's the only province in Canada that's totally banned the use of glyphosate, James. Is that uh, your findings as well? The forestry, I think they still still use it for agriculture. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, yeah, they they stopped doing that in 2001. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, the forest industry never collapsed. They've got a thriving forest industry. you know, one of the things that we could talk about is if, because of the big argument, uh, forest grain is the cheapest way to to get rid of all of your so-called uh, competition. Mm-hmm. Um, what if we, you know, if we switch to manual brushing, you're going to cost a lot more money to do that. 
but how about we just um, reduce the requirement to get rid of all the aspen and birch? Mm-hmm. You know, maybe maybe you say uh, because right now, that's the, realistically, the what it all comes down to is this um, this unknown little regulation in the Forest and Range Practices Act that says all these regenerated cut blocks have to be ninety five percent dominated by commercial species. And in the essential interior, aspen and birch, of course, aren't commercial species. And so you're only allowed to have 5% max of that cup block being in, in aspen patches or birch patches. And there's no minimum. So you can get rid of 100% of it if you want. There's no requirement to leave any deciduous whatsoever. <laughs> so how about we increase that to say, you know what, we can have 20% of that cup block in aspen. That would basically get rid of the need to brush and spray completely. Mm-hmm. And and why the heck not? You know, we'd have a, a more diverse forest, and and like Mike says, we'd be we'd be respecting those other values. We'd be having all these um, plants uh, for the other uh, food chains and other animals. And, mm-hmm. and isn't it that, funny know, forest, that uh, isn't it funny that thousands of years before we ever arrived here, <laughs> all these trees grow perfectly well? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, they. Yeah, how did that? How did that ever happen? Yeah, yeah. Well, the forest that was my grandfather's. Uh, he had like nine hundred acres of crown land in Halliburton, Ontario, and everything grew in that forest. And nobody, um, that forest had been burned down, but it all it was deciduous forest with every kind of tree you could ever imagine in it. And when he had it. Um, when he had someone come in to take the trees, he walked through and marked the trees, and the guy came in with the horses. And, you know, there is a horse logger in town here, I understand, that uh, goes in and does horse logging. And, yeah. yeah, it takes a little while, but it sure leaves the forest nice and un, uh, un kind of untouched in a way. Well, it, it's, it's amazing how much, uh, you know, just actually two people can do uh, mm-hmm. Logging, like I, I myself have gone into the bush and, and just for myself, you know, I've uh, cut up some eight foot long pine, dead pine stuff, mm-hmm. and you can accumulate quite a pile in a short amount of time. Yeah, you know, you can you can get uh, you know well over a, a normal day's wage um, just collecting these dead blowdown yep. pine trees, you know, right off the right off the side of the road for firewood or whatever. So I think there's a lot. Of, I think what we forget is there's a lot of money and a lot of jobs to be made in the bush still. Yes, especially with lumber prices the way they are. Yes, and these are these are historic lumber prices. And just think of all the people that used to work in in the bush mm-hmm. 30 years ago. You mm-hmm. know, it's a fraction of that today. Yeah, uh, all the buckers and skittermen and hand fallers and it's all all that stuff is gone. It's just two guys in these huge machines. Yeah, just laying waste to like thousand hectare clear cuts. Yeah, you know, and and then and then we've lost all these small mills. We've lost. Like I added it in since two thousand. We've lost uh, twelve hundred direct mill jobs in Prince George. Holy! And not holy. including not including all the logging jobs we've lost. So we were like thousands of jobs short of where we were, and the same amount is coming out of the bush. Yeah. So where where is all this money going? And we don't need to get into that today, but I think I think we really need to start asking questions of, you know, who's benefiting from what we're doing to our forests. And, and one of the big arguments for why we're spraying, you know, why we do all these things we're doing for forestry is for jobs. And mm-hmm. we have to we have to really look at that and say, is that the case? And yeah, um, and because 
if that isn't for jobs, which I don't see those jobs anymore, no, no. then why are we doing it? Yeah. And, um, and Mike, you said that it takes 60, 60 years for a tree to be harvested? Well, that's the cycle that a lot of the foresters are looking at in the interior, 60 to 80 years. Um, you know, you cut a tree down, plant it, and then another 60 or 80 years later, you, you harvest it again. Mm-hmm. And you keep that cycle up. But the problem that we have with that cycle is it takes about 100 years before these trees start developing the tree cavities that are so necessary for for maternal uh, denning for Martin Fisher and a number. In fact, there's 65 species that rely on tree cavities for maternal denning or nesting purposes. So um, what we would be doing is we would be eliminating those 65 species, extirpating them from British Columbia. There's a, there's a recent uh, report come up from the Forest Practices Board this week on a trap line uh, just on the outside of Prince George here in the Norman Lake area, mm-hmm. uh, criticizing the licensee for not leaving any fisher habitat. Yet fisher have been blue listed and now red listed by the province as a species at risk. Yeah. And yet we continue to destroy the only habitat that is left for them. Uh, we, we will be extirp- extirpating fisher from British Columbia at the rate we're going probably within the next four or five years. And so to James's question, if we've got less people working in the bush but taking out the same amount of, of lumber, where is the money going? <laughs> well, that's... Uh, that would be a topic of a, of a discussion that we could have at some point in time down the road here. But uh, I'm certainly not going to deny, uh, a, a, you know, business opportunity in for, for making money. Yeah. But I think we can do it in a better way that reflects um, our environmental issues, our eco- ecological issues, and uh, and also value added so that, uh, you know, we've we got... James, who is a woodworker, that he has enough work to keep him going for the rest of his life, and we've got a supply of wood coming in to all these different value-added operations across the province. You know, we've got Timberspan in Prince George, who is a prime example of what can be done with, uh, you know, six, 10,000 cubic meters of wood in a year. He keeps a dozen guys fully employed. Mm-hmm. He does value-added work, and, uh, you know, he's uh, it's a good example of what can be done. Yeah. And so... Uh, guys, what should we do? What should us citizens do? Should we start writing uh, forestry, uh, Government of Canada? Um, should we get a whole group of us together with pots and pans? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's uh, the noise that's made externally, and I've said this to others before, you know, helps me with my argument internally, uh, either with caucus or government, whoever it might be. Mm-hmm. But I, I think it's time that, you know, the, the public in British Columbia have, you know, they have no idea really what goes on outside because they never travel the bush roads except for, you know, guys like me. Yeah. And and uh, they would be shocked at the amount of uh, deforestation that has taken place in the province over the last 75 years. And I'm not going to point a finger at any particular government, although, you know, we brought in the Forest and Rain Practices Act, but there were other statutes before that were that were problematic as well. Mm-hmm. But we adopted an incomplete strategy back in 1945 called the Sustainable Yield Strategy, where the, uh, during that Royal Commission in 1945, and they said, yep, we can grow trees and cut them down and grow trees so we'll have the sustainable yield. And the commissioner at the time made the point of saying, and we really, you know, we don't have to include wildlife and the other values in the land within the definition of sustainable yield. Mm-hmm. Well, unfortunately, that was an incomplete strategy that has morphed into a ideology that's taught in our universities and our colleges 
in our forestry programs where it, nobody has really paid attention to wildlife habitat and riparian areas or anything like that up until probably the early 2000s, which is way too late. Wow. You know, if we'd had to do the same thing all over again, knowing what we know today yeah. uh, on ecology, we would still have dense forests in British Columbia and we would have some very um, uh, robust, uh, a, a very robust force industry with value added, added products uh, that uh, would be the envy of most uh, jurisdictions around the world. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, an, that's an excellent point. I mean, just to add to Mike's point there, there's a uh, riparian guideline book on how to log around riparian areas that the province put out in the early 2000s. And I'm sure Mike can attest to this about uh, the, the importance of aspen to beaver. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's, their fa- that's one of their favorite foods. And these riparian guidelines uh, say absolutely nothing about beaver. Yeah. And basically, it, uh, it's a book on how to get rid of deciduous around beaver habitat. And they make all these claims about the importance of large debris for stream. Mm-hmm. So basically, just grow conifer plantations right up to stream veg. Mm-hmm. You know, it was saying nothing for beaver, but you need to have and deciduous along those waterways to provide beaver with food. Yes. Otherwise, they're not going to be there. Yeah. And you're going to lose out on all these riparian functions. Yep. And and uh, so the bobtail fire, they actually, I found out about this document because they are doing a bunch of riparian enhancements in that bobtail burn. Yes. The government's paying for it. So they wrote a whole report about how to do that, and they quoted this riparian guideline that Victoria put out, and basically saying, well, we've got to, like, brush all the aspen cut it down mm-hmm. around all the creeks to do to follow these guidelines and I called up the government guy in Vanderhoof and he's like yeah that document's crazy mm-hmm. we're totally ignoring it um, we're actually not brushing oh, good. any aspen around any of the riparian areas I'm like thank god that we have people in government that know this stuff right um, yeah but but yeah it's just it's just kind of all the stuff has been overlooked and a lot of the guiding documents we have, guiding forestry, don't pay attention to it. And that's a really good example of that. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really easy to do forestry differently. We have examples here in Prince George. Liam Parfit there, he runs a company called Freya. And he's all in, he's, you know, mm-hmm. really, really enthusiastic about doing a different style of forestry, which is more selective logging. Uh, not taking all the trees down. If there's a snag in there with uh, with a cavity, you leave that alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other great thing about doing that kind of logging is you have all these seed trees left behind so that they can reseed naturally the conifer. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, the, the aspen and the birch are going to grow in there too, but uh, the conifer is going to have a more likely chance to get established as opposed to these huge clear cuts where you don't have any seed trees. Like, yeah. they're just huge wastelands. And they're just going to be pine or spruce plantations with no future wildlife habitat like Mike said like it's just going to be on 60 year rotations and there's never going to be an opportunity for wildlife to really do well in those places. Well and things will change in 60 to 80 years we'll be building things out of the plastic bags we have kicking all over the place. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) And and I I mean it's nice to think about the future but I think that 60 years for a tree to grow um, we're going to have made incredible changes, hopefully, or we'll wipe ourselves out, one of the two. Um, anyway, it looks like we, I've got to say goodbye to you two. Um, uh, 
but we have to have a commercial break. And so I want to thank you both for this. Um, My I'm, pleasure. I want to talk to um, a couple of those guys that you were talking about that are, are making work for people by working in the bush. And so I'll get a hold of both of you and get their names so I can have them do an interview with them. You bet. Sounds good. All right. Take care. Good chatting. Yes. Talk to you guys later. Thank Take care, Mike. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye. We'll take a short commercial break, and then we'll be back with uh, more Senior Moments. West Coast Chamber Music is pleased to announce that their final concert of the season, Trios for Clarinet, Cello, and Piano, has been rescheduled and now will be available to view this Friday through Monday. It's a wonderful program featuring music from composers like Brahms and Max Brook. West Coast Chamber Music's final concert of the season, Trios for Clarinet, Cello, and Piano, Friday through Monday. Tickets are available on their website, westcoastchambermusic.com. London Drugs is expanding their local central program to further support local restaurants across Western Canada. Any restaurant with specialty items suitable for retail sales, such as sauces, jams, rubs, or apparel, are encouraged to submit them for consideration to be sold from London Drugs shelves. More information and application forms are available online through the news and events link at the bottom of the londondrugs.com homepage. The London Drugs local central program. Some rules and restrictions apply. The Survivor BC Prostate Cancer Exercise Program is now available via Zoom. The program supports men living with prostate cancer, helping to increase flexibility, improve muscle and cardiovascular fitness, meet new people, and learn safe and effective exercises. To register, contact Lisa Newcomb by emailing inspiredlifestyles at shaw.ca. The Survivor BC Prostate Cancer Exercise Program, Monday and Wednesday afternoons from 1 to 2 through June 30th. Forecast from Environment Canada. Today, sunny, high of 16 with a high UV index. Tonight, increasing cloudiness, a low of 5. Wednesday, mainly cloudy with a 60% chance of showers in the morning, then a mix of sun and cloud, a high of 16. You're listening to Senior Moments on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Brought to you in part by Riverbend Seniors Community. When you live at Riverbend, you will feel right at home. Okay, Sharon, we're back, and we've got Terry on the line. Oh, hi, Terry. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm good. It's a nice sunny day. We should be out sunbathing. <laughs> yeah. You know what? We're down here on the corner of Quebec and 3rd, and... Everybody's walking like they're in Florida. I think there's a lot of tough people out there. Yeah. <laughs> they got bare feet, sandals. They've got pop tops on. They've got guys with no shirts on. It looks like it's 15 degrees, so it's not bad. <laughs> and that is for me. There I am in my wool shirt. Now, Terry, tell me how you pronounce your last name. McClymont. Okay, so it is McClymont. I wasn't sure if it was McClymont. Is that Scottish? Yes, but my father-in-law tells me I pronounced it wrong for the last 32 years, so who knows? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, who knows, eh? Well, I wanted to talk to you because um, on um, your, your Facebook pages that um, you're sharing, there's so many interesting things that you're doing with junk. <laughs> <laughs> Not me. I just like to share all the ideas. Oh, good. <laughs> well, I think somebody's a good idea person that you've got there and recycling uh, the stuff. So um, 
First of all, let's talk about what REAP stands for. Uh, Recycling Environmental Action Planning Society. And is it a non-profit organization? We're a charitable non-profit, yes. Right. And so uh, do you give out donation receipts when people bring things in? or We do. We, we provide a receipt um, for any monetary over $20. Uh-huh. Um, and also if it's... The value is over $20. Whatever is donated, we do um, charitable receipts. Good, because uh, uh, people need to know that so that if they brought in a, um, oh, say an, a lawnmower, would you take it? Um, yeah, we could find a home for it if it still worked, yeah. um, or we can tell you where you can recycle it. Yeah, good. Okay. And, I mean, I think it's such a great idea that recycling is coming into more than just a few homes. I think there's a lot of people that are recycling now. And I find that um, the, well, I'll just, they call it the recycling, I call it the dump. <laughs> That's what I call it, it, because it's always been the dump to me. Oh, the one out on foothills? No, at at College Heights. But they don't really recycle the way you do. College Heights? I'm still trying to figure out the dump in College Heights. (laughs) You mean the Vanway Transfer Station? (laughs) Is that the right word? (laughs) So at the Vanway Transfer Station, they have two bins there that take all your cardboard, your box board, um, all your containers, and all your tin cans. They have uh, propane tanks, tire, um, no tires there. Tires have to go up to the landfill. Yeah. And they have all your yard and garden waste and all your metal products. Yeah. Um, and then they also have for a small fee of $6 to get rid of your true garbage. Yep. And if we look at our household, 80, about 85% of our household can be diverted from the landfill. Yes, it can. Yeah. And that's what we need to talk about. Is how do we, what do we bring to you? You don't bring anything to me. Okay. I tell you where you take it. <laughs> oh, that's what you do. That's I your job. Oh, we I like your job. Website, we have a waste reduction directory that has over 90 different items, and it will tell you where things can be recycled or disposed of safely. So anything from clothing to eyewear to light bulbs to glasses to medicines to oil to tires, um, yeah, it's all listed on there. So, um, and so you are more of an educational place, um, because I, I read about, uh, how to do composting. Yes, yes. And composting is another form of recycling, right? So mm-hmm. that's how we get rid of our yard and garden and kitchen waste through composting to create a valuable soil supplement. Mm-hmm. So it's fertilizer for our lawn, our potted plants, and our gardens. Yeah, better than glyphosate. We were just talking about glyphosate spray. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Go natural. Yeah, exactly. And so, so now, okay, so I misunderstood. I thought that you were a place where we took our things, but you were a place who tells people where to go and to, and how to get, to get there. <laughs> you betcha. Um, we do take something. So like in the fall, we have, um, we take everyone's bagged up leaves because that feeds our composters. Yeah. Um, in a normal year and not a COVID year, we have our recycling toy drive in November. So we take all used toys mm-hmm. and we give them back to 13 different agencies for children in the Prince George area. Um, we take garden um, tools and we hand those out to the various community gardens in town. We take all the pots um, from plants that people are busy um, filling in their greenhouses and their gardens. We take all those plant pots 
and we reuse them and we give them back out to other gardeners um, to reuse as well. Okay. And then composting is um, layers. Is it layers or do, can you just throw it? So if you have a composting spot in your, in your backyard, do you, you can just throw everything in there that is good for composting? No. Okay. <laughs> um, so if you're going to have a backyard composter, um, and within the city limits, I recommend a container. If you have farm or you have acres, then mm-hmm. you can just have a pile. Mm-hmm. But a composter is a living, breathing system. Mm-hmm. Um, it means the same things we do, fo- food, water, and oxygen. Mm-hmm. And so oxygen, you're turning your composter at least twice a week. You're making sure it's moist like a wring-out sponge because all the critters that are working in there are living, breathing organisms from your centipedes to your your bugs and your worms. They all need oxygen, water, and food. And your food's broken down into two categories, browns and greens. Browns are your leaves, shredded paper, wood chips, um, and your greens are considered your kitchen waste or fresh grass clippings. And you always cover your food waste from the kitchen with a non-food source. So existing compost, soil, leaves from the garden, shredded paper. Isn't it amazing that all of that stuff can make earth yeah, it makes a very valuable soil supplement, yes. Um, it's, so it's vitamins for the plants. When you make your compost, you have to use at least a 50-50 ratio. So mm-hmm. 50% compost, 50% soil. Okay. Yeah, it's just because I've never composted. I, I mean, my grandmother had a worm patch up at the cottage, and, and that was about as much as I ever knew about feeding something so she can go fishing. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, well, I know. And and she'd say, honey, go dig me up some worms. I want to go fishing. And she never used a motor. She, um, rode and she, she used, uh, she didn't use a regular fishing rod. It was, uh, copper wire on something that she would pull back and forth. But th- th- I think really and truly she just wasn't fishing. I think she was getting away from grandpa. Yep, yep, having her own quiet time. <laughs> yeah. And now it's really interesting about, how long it takes for uh, bio de- uh, biodegradable things to, um, you know, get down to, like, vegetables, it only takes five days. In a backyard composter, it can go anywhere from a couple of days to a few months. Yeah. It depends on if you're keeping the system aerobic, so with oxygen, by turning it and keeping it moist. Yeah. Um, if we put those produce, like our peelings, into the landfill, it can take anywhere from 2 to 100 years to break down. And when it rots in the landfill without oxygen, it produces methane gas. That's why it's good to keep all our organics out of the landfill and recycle through composting. Well, the funny thing, it even mentions um, um, wool socks. <laughs> <laughs> which takes one year to to break down. And and I thought, well, but then we're talking about um, the Vanway kind of a place, putting that stuff in there and wherever they put it afterwards. I, okay, so at the transfer stations, when you're dropping off your yard and garden waste, yeah. it's only yard and garden, no wool socks. No. And all that stuff <laughs> goes up to the landfill, and that's where they windrow to make the Norgrow compost. Oh, Okay. Uh, now you're getting, yeah. And so I guess what I found was, um, when you throw something out, um, on, uh, on the side of the road or just dump it someplace, how many years it takes for that to, 
to disappear? Well, it would take the same amount of time as it would in the backyard composter, anywhere from a couple of days to a few months. But yeah. that, that's the problem. When you throw out your waste, food yeah. waste, you're attracting animals. And those yeah. animals are going to get hit by a car. Yes. They're going to become habituated to animal, um, to human waste, right? Right. Um, and that's just not acceptable. Yeah. And no, it isn't. And uh, and I think, so leaves take quite a time. Leaves? Leaves. leaves. Um, yeah, if you look at Mother Nature in the fall, she drops all her leaves, and by yep. springtime, it's all a big, wet mess, and yep. by the fall again, it's nice nutrients for the trees and plants to take up. That's why I don't rake. <laughs> You're not supposed <laughs> to rake until, um, like, May. Yeah, no, I don't rake anyway, because I think, it naturally will go back, and especially when you mow the lawn, if you mow it. And, of course, I won't mow until the dandelions are, are done because the hummingbirds are back, and they they need something to eat. Well, and so do the bees. The bees are yes. pollinators. The um, dandelions are the first food for the bees. Yes, and so we don't want to call them weeds or say they're nasty. We need to let the bees and the hummers, because I've got quite a few hummingbirds around, and I have heard a couple of uh, of the big bees, the uh, bumblebees. I've heard a couple of them. Yeah, and... The um, bees are our pollinators, and yep. they love the dandelions. Yeah. And the dandelion, you can eat the whole plant. Yeah, you can. And and that's what, I, you know, there aren't such thing as weeds. And I don't know why you have to have a perfect lawn. And, uh, I mean, I think uh, those kind of things, well, I'm a person that cuts the lawn just to keep the mosquitoes down, and I might cut the lawn twice a year. <laughs> I like my, I like my, uh, mis- my. I don't care about the mosquitoes because the birds eat them. Yep, yep, and the bats, and the bats, and I've got, I've got some bats around my place. I've got a little owl that is around. They eat the mice. I don't have to catch mice. I let them catch them. Mm-hmm. If they get in the house, the other day I was vacuuming and I thought, what's that under the table? Oh, it's one of those tabs somehow or other got under there. And I went and picked it up and here it was a poor little mouse that had been tortured to death. Oh, dear. By my cats. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a life cycle, right? <laughs> well, and not very often do they get in the house because I have so many other animals around outside eating them. I think... People get kind of freaked out about, um, you know, sharing room with uh, wildlife. <laughs> I don't mind. Everybody has a spot. No, they, they do. And so what, um, if I came down there, to, what would I bring to you? Or you would just tell me. So I would say, I've got this, um, this lawnmower and it, it's in good working order and I don't use it anymore. Um, so then I would suggest that you put it on the Free Cycle Facebook pages. Okay. Um, talk to your neighbor. You can put it on the buy and sell, and you can get a few dollars for it. Uh-huh. And if you had to recycle it because it wasn't working, then you can take it to the Prince George Return It Recycling Center. Mm-hmm. It's part of our outdoor power equipment. Oh, I've never yeah. heard of it. Yep, there's um, almost 20 different stewardships in B.C., from pharmaceuticals to tires to oils to beverage containers to printed paper and packaging to eyeglasses. Um, and these stewardships, every time you buy something, you're paying a recycling fee right. to have that item recycled. Right. And so you can take prescriptions? 
Yep, your prescriptions, if you have leftover pills, they yep. go back to the pharmacy from where you took them, where you purchased them. Okay, and what about those little bottles that you get um, the prescriptions in? Because I think I, you know, I have to renew quite often different uh, meds that I'm on, and I just hate throwing those bottles out. Those are recyclable in your um, container. Uh-huh. A blue bin, a curb, um, and also I recommend taking the labels off. Yep. Um, and also that's one thing that we do take because we do Ellie the Elephant and Plastics with children, and we make plastic in those pill bottles, so we do accept those. Oh, good, because I, really, I feel really bad. I tried to take them back to the pharmacy, but they wouldn't take them. Oh, well, they're, they're supposed to. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that's good to know, too, but I'll bring them down to you instead. Sure. And, and so you make kind of really neat things out of this stuff that, I, and so this is with kids, is it? You're... Yes, with kids. We have a number of school presentations that we do in the classroom, and so we're always using recycled items to make different crafts. Mm-hmm. And teaching the kids about the the value and the importance of recycling and composting and taking care of uh, the the uh, insects and the things that keep us um, able to grow food. Yep, we teach the kids all about the environment and what part they play. Oh, that is really great. And so you go into the school. Yes, I do. Now, can you, would you be able to go into, like, um, I used to work at Phoenix Transition House. Would you be able to go in there and give a presentation? If they invite me, I'm happy to go in. Okay, because I'll make that suggestion. I think, um, you know, gardening is one of those things. When I first started working in shelters, um, I asked a um, a wise woman, a First Nations wise woman, how can I work with Indigenous people when I'm not Indigenous? And because, you know, they see me as the colonizer. And she said, grow a garden. And, and, and you know something? She was right. We, we had someone come in, dig up the lawn, put in a garden, and I'd go out there with the women and get on my hands and knees and pull weeds and plant seeds and, and it was a wonderful way to become uh, one with that other person. Mm-hmm. Yep, there's a number of schools that have um, community gardens on their property, and the kids are learning about planting and nature. And working with First Nations is a great opportunity to share the knowledge because they have a wealth of knowledge with medicinal plants. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's really exciting. I didn't know that. You're teaching me lots. You do tell people what <laughs> yeah. to do and what to, where to go. <laughs> that's very wonderful. And so I'm going to get a hold of Phoenix House and ask them to get a hold of you, Terry, and... Uh, and see if you, you know, set up a time. I I mean, everybody will be masked. You can sit outside in the backyard. It's quite big. And do a presentation. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I do lots of presentations um, for the new immigrants that come to town, um, businesses, organizations, community groups. Yeah. Okay. So how do they get a hold of you? Um, they can just call 250-561-7327 or recycling at reaps.org. Okay, and so I have to say goodbye to you, but this was very informative for me. I hope it was for everybody else, and I hope you get busier than heck. Great. Have a wonderful day. (laughs) You too, Terry. Thanks so much. Okay, bye. Bye. And so this is Senior Moments, and we'll talk to you next week. I'm going to go and sit in the sun. 
Senior Moments is a co-production of 93.1 CFIS-FM and the Prince George Council of Seniors. Senior Moments is produced by Sharon Hearn with production assistance from A.J. Fair. Theme music is courtesy of Golf Brooks Music. Catch the rebroadcast of today's show tonight at 9 or replay past shows through the podcast at cfisfm.ca. Owned and operated by the Prince George Community Radio Society, you're listening to CFISFM Prince George, a not-for-profit community radio station broadcasting with 500 watts of power at 93.1 FM.